Hi, everyone. This is Donna Cleveland, host and producer of Thread the Needle. I think it goes without saying that 2020 hasn't been what any of us expected it to be. Between the pandemic, the tragic deaths of more of our Black community, including George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, just to name a few, and in my life, the personal loss of a childhood friend to cancer, it's been a heavy time, and I've had to take some time away from the show. I'm happy to report, though, that I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode of Thread the Needle. In episode six, I'll be exploring ageism, which it turns out is the most common form of discrimination around the world. In this episode, I'll investigate the surprising link between age and happiness that shows up in studies across cultures and countries. But in the meantime, I wanted to share an episode of a show that addresses the systemic racism that we're continuing to face in this country. It's from Inflection Point, a fantastic podcast that shares stories of how women rise up. In the episode you're about to hear, host Lauren Schiller, which let me just say I felt an immediate bond with Lauren because my sister's name is Lauren Schill. Um, But anyways, in the episode you're about to hear, Lauren talks to Ijoma Oluo, author of So You Want to Talk About Race, about the dangers of white feminism. I thought there couldn't be a better time to explore the practical, everyday actions we can take to help dismantle systemic racism. I'll also be taking my own look at race in next month's episode of Thread the Needle. Is there a little bug? Yeah, the bug is floating on the water, isn't it? This is me creek stomping with my niece and nephew at Kiyosakwa State Park over this summer, which is about a 20-minute drive from the little Iowa town where I grew up. Hi, sweetheart. Hey, I'll do the... Whoa, big spider. My niece and nephew are biracial, and my sister and her husband have been doing some soul-searching and talking to each other about where they can raise their children, where they know they will be safe. And they've been coming up blank. In the Midwest, even though people pride themselves on being nice, in this episode, I'll explore why white people think the Midwest is not a racist place and why black Midwesterners know that it is. We'll also talk about where we can go from here. But without further ado, let's hear from Ijoma Oluo as she shares insights from her book, So You Want to Talk About Race. From KALW and PRX, this is Inflection Point with stories of how women rise up. I'm Lauren Schiller. This was a land founded on white supremacy. It is baked into the bones of this society. And that means that every institution it has, has that built into it. It is built to support and nurture this white supremacist society. And so everything I interact with has that in it. And it is something that if it was built for you as a white person, you may not notice. But if you are a person of color, it doesn't fit. You know, it rubs against you. And you feel it all of the time. If you haven't heard about it yet, Ijoma Aluo has written a book called So You Want to Talk About Race. 
I'm looking at the world in a different way ever since I read it. I went into our conversation wondering, what can I do about all this nasty, insidious racism that permeates our culture? And what does it mean for the feminist movement? We can't be working at cross-purposes. We can't be divided. We all need to work together to rise up. But what will that take? Last season, I talked with a number of women who are actively addressing systemic racism. Laura Weidman Powers has created Code 2040, an organization developed to combat racism in the tech industry. Our job is not to convince people racism exists. Our job is not to convince people they should care about racism. Our job is to connect with people who are deeply uncomfortable with the way things are now and help them get engaged in a path to make things better. But not everyone thinks racism exists, let alone that addressing systemic racism is going to make things better. Author Arlie Hochschild embedded herself in Trump's white America for her book, Strangers in Their Own Land. So you're taking judgments out, you're taking facts out, you're just telling a story of how, how it feels. And in it, people are lined in a big, long line up a hill as in a pilgrimage, at the top of which is the American dream. The line is not moving, as far as you can tell, maybe a little bit. And you've worked extremely hard and feel a strong sense of deserving for the rewards at the top, when suddenly you notice people seeming to be cutting ahead of you, and you feel insulted, insult to injury. So for those of us who are convinced that systemic racism exists, and who have, dare I say, a bit of privilege, what can we do to help change the system? So that's why I nervously asked Sabah Folian, the director of Whose Streets, a documentary about the Ferguson uprising. As a white woman, what part can I play in ending racism? I do not have any advice, and I do not give white people advice on what to do, because this is how it's been in my experience with white people wanting to be a part of it. There are kind of two different types. There are people who I look up, and all of a sudden, here we are together doing the work, and there are people who are kind of waiting to figure out what to do. And I think, you know, you have a platform here, you have this show, you have, you know, a critical thinking mind and ability to bring out stories, and you're using that to engage in this conversation. And I think that's the right thing for you to be doing, but I think that answer is going to be different for every single person. I think it's just about engage, look at reality for what it is, don't turn away. So let's not turn away. I want to figure this out together, which is why I turned to Ijoma Aluo, whose new book, So You Want to Talk About Race, is the most accessible and personal that I've read. Ijoma's dad was from Nigeria, and her mom is white. They lived in a mostly white neighborhood, and she and her siblings went to mostly white schools. And so even from a really young age when I didn't have words for what was so different, um, and growing up in a very white area that I did, um, it was a thing no one talked about. But my brother and I, were always, we always stood out. We were the only two black kids um, around until probably about middle school. You are very much aware that this world was not built for you. And you don't know how to interact with it. You don't quite know what you're going to do that's wrong or right because it wasn't, you know, built to be easy for you. And a lot of people of color live with that reality every single day from a very young age. Yet Ijoma didn't really talk with her own mother about race until she was in her 30s.
I mean, you know, we had practical conversations, you know, things about how to be around cops or store security or, you know, and of course, my mom wanted us to be very proud about our heritage. But it was a very, you know, everyday functionality type conversation. But, you know, sitting down to talk about what our respective roles or our experiences were from our particular race, racial viewpoints wasn't a conversation we had. I don't think it's a conversation a lot of families have. And I think it's something that's hard for parents of a different race than their children to realize how different of a lens they are looking at the world and looking at race than their children. So a lot of times it doesn't even, it's not even something that would occur to most people. And, you know, when it came to my mom and and, and I, you know, my mom and her other kids, we have your typical family conversations. You know, we roll our eyes at her like teenagers when she says something hilarious and uh, talk about, you know, what we're going to do for family holidays and, you know, who's doing what and what the kids are doing. And that was about it. Um, But we missed a lot of really important conversations because it's not really something that society says that we need to have. So when what was your reaction when she finally broached the topic from that angle? I was really shocked and kind of embarrassed to realize that somehow I had managed to write all of these essays and do all this work and still hadn't had this conversation with my mom um, and that I had missed it, you know, because I, I, I had already by then spent quite a bit of time encouraging people to have these conversations and also being open about how important it was for, you know, white parents of children of color um, to talk about race and to realize that my own mom and I hadn't actually really intent, you know, intently driven into that conversation. So at first it was just kind of like, oh God, you know, <laughs> just a little bit of mortification. Like I, you know, um, if, if Twitter could see me now, like, you know, um, it would be a little awkward. So um, it, it was weird to realize how, f- how we really were starting at square one on a lot of issues um, of things that I just, I think I had assumed because of the work I do that my mom had just gotten. Um, I don't think I realized she read my work the way moms read work. You know what I mean? (laughs) Reading my work to try to be better at these things. She was reading my work so that she could brag and share pictures with her friends and, you know, like moms. Um, And, you know, anything we do for a living, if I were an architect, she wouldn't be looking at it to see how solid my design is. She would want to show people, you know, my kid draws houses, you know, well, that's kind of where my mom had been with my work, my kid writes essays, um, and to realize that we ha- we still needed to be more intentional in our conversations ourselves in order for it to make an impact. Um, it was kind of one of those things where I had kind of skipped a lot of those basic steps myself. I think I, th- I had assumed my work meant I could skip it over in my personal relationships, that maybe if through osmosis, you know, other people would just get it, and that's not quite how it works. Um, You know, it's funny what led to it was I think my mom was excited because she had thought she had had this great epiphany about race that she was on the right track. She had solved a major problem Um, and she hadn't. (laughs) But she called me to share because, you know, this is the work I do for a living. Ijoma writes in her book that the circumstances around this epiphany are cringeworthy. Her white mom has told a joke to a black coworker that doesn't go over well. Her mom calls Ijoma because she wants to explain to this man that she's one of the good white people. Ijoma is at this point regretting the invention of the telephone. And so I was in this awkward situation of having a very eager and excited parent who was kind of on the wrong track on the subject and having to like find a way to have to realize that within that 
there were some fundamental discussions we hadn't had, but the source of, of these errors were in those early discussions that we didn't have and realizing that I was going to have to have this kind of awkward teaching moment with my mom and really dive into this and and also that I really didn't have an idea as to where she saw herself racially and in the fight against racial oppression and that I was going to have to figure that out and we were going to have to have that conversation. Wait, so where does she see herself in the fight against racial oppression? Um, definitely now she sees herself in a different space than she did. You know, my mom had a very kind of tough early life and the only place where she had really felt accepted and loved was with my father's community, with all of these Nigerians, with these Black people. And so to my mom, that was really more home than anything else. And I think that because my mom had lived so closely with Nigerians for a long time and had loved us and loved our Blackness, loved our heritage so much and had raised us, she really thought that that was the same as being Black and had really thought that her place was right next to Black people, you know, next to Blackness, standing with us, dancing with us. One, you know, she had an invitation to the cookout. Um, but what she didn't get was that she still hadn't lived as a Black person for a single minute of her life. And she didn't quite see what that privilege in her life looked like. She was still just as susceptible to the ways in which, you know, privilege stops you from seeing the oppressions of other people. And so that's where she thought her space was, was kind of a buddy, you know, one of the one of the gang. And what she sees herself as now more is as a white person who has a lot of privilege in white spaces to work with other white people to dismantle white privilege. Um, and that's a an important shift. And it moved her from being someone who was just standing next to me, but not really able to do much to help me, to being a mom who could find a space in the white world that I don't have access to, to have her own uncomfortable conversations with people and really push for change in spaces that people of color really can't. And so that's kind of where she's learning right now, is she's kind of exploring whiteness and finding where she can really make a difference there. So is she still with your dad? No, my father passed away uh, about 12 years ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, do you remember them ever having conversations with each other about this topic? No, and I, you know, they didn't really have many. Um, my father went back to Nigeria during the coup in 1982 and was held prisoner for a while and, and stayed there until he died. Um, but my mom, you know, talked a lot about suffering a lot of, you know, anger and hatred because she was with a black man. We were, my brother and I were both born in Texas. Um, you know, I was born in 1980. My brother was born in 1982. And when she was giving birth to my brother, he was a 10 pound baby. And she was in labor for three days before a doctor came to check on her oh. because they really didn't want to have anything to do with her. And a nurse had to call a doctor from another hospital to come and help her. Because they because knew that she was going to have a, a baby that was half black? Yeah. Wow. Um, and so, you know, for my mom, those are the stories that stick into her head. But, you know, they didn't have a lot of these conversations. And I also don't know if my dad was quite prepared. My dad had come here to finish his schooling, to get his master's and PhD. So he came from a place where everyone was black. 
um, to America. And it was a very limited experience. And I don't know if he had time to fully acclimate. I don't know what their conversations would have been. I think he was Nigerian before he was anything else because he hadn't been here long enough to really see fully how America treats Black people. Will you tell me the story of what happened to your brother in elementary school? That was probably the most gutting chapter for me to write because I didn't realize how much it had, how angry I still was. Um, especially, I think now as a parent of two young boys, you know, yeah. um, uh, I didn't realize how upset I still was about this um, and the toll it took on my brother. But and then looking now, of course, as a parent, um, I'm outraged because my goodness, this was the worst idea. Um, even if you take everything else aside, it was just a horrible idea. Um, so my my brother um, in elementary school had a teacher who had this kind of reward system. And on the surface, it seemed like many others. Right. You got fake money. Um, for turning in homework or, you know, helping a classmate or things like that. Um, and then at the end of the week, you were able to cash it in for little treats, you know, and she'd buy a piece of candy or things like that. And it was to teach, you know, kids responsibility and, you know, a good way to keep them behaving. But you would lose money if you, you know, were late with homework or if you had a messy desk or, you know, you were distracted, things like that. And my brother was messy, he was distracted. You know, he had a lot of energy in class. Um, we are a family of ADD. Um, and my brother has no diagnosis, but I do. My sons do. We're not people who sit well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the catch to this whole scheme wasn't, oh, at the end of the week, you didn't get any treats because you didn't have money. Um, the, the catch that made this thing much more insidious, uh, much more like kind of evil, <laughs> was that you had to pay rent on your desk. And if you didn't have money for rent, you lost your desk and you had to sit on the floor. And my brother quickly found himself homeless. And that's what they called him, the homeless kid. And as, you know, he got made fun of more and more for it, he would act out more. And, you know, what turned into a day or two stretched into weeks. And it really just crushed him and destroyed any chance of a social life and really gave him a ton of anxiety. And it was just one of those lasting things where, you know, even today, if, you know, he's doing quite well, but, you know, it's not something he still wants to talk about at all. Um, it was very traumatic. And the only reason why I had found out about it, because he wasn't talking about it, he didn't tell anyone, was because he was in a split class. So... He was in, it was either second or third grade, and I was a grade up. And because of half of his class were kids my age, I heard about it from them. You know, and every time he would say hi to me, the kids would laugh at him and say homeless, you know, and, and mock him. And then I finally got another kid in my grade who was in his class to explain to me what was going on. Um, and, and even then I knew it was bad, but I still didn't quite get, you know, how bad it was because I was a kid as well. Um, but looking at the way it kind of just crushed any spirit he had and it lasted for years and years. And, you know, once a kid kind of gets known, once they're kind of pegged as the odd kid, um, that's a label that doesn't leave. And a lot of times for kids of color, when you have something where you already visually stand out, you know, and he was the only black kid in his class, to add something like that as well, it's it's really hard to shake. So this idea of the melting pot, I was born in the 70s. 
that was what was drilled into our heads. America is a melting pot. It doesn't matter what color you are. Anyone can succeed. And I, at the time, that felt like a totally, like that was what equality meant. And now it seems like that whole concept is actually <laughs> completely incorrect. I mean, what, what do you think about that idea? And is, has it been actually damaging to this conversation? I think the idea of a melting pot it is steeped in a lot of ignorance as to how race has functioned in this society and why it was created. Race wasn't created so that we could have words to share culture. It was created so that we could have justification to steal from other cultures. So what a lot of people think is a melting pot is really a white culture taking what it will from other cultures and then forcing what it wants onto other cultures. But half of this equation has almost no say as to how this exchange works. So as a Black woman, I can't say, oh, you, you know, this this hairstyle is lovely that I have and it is now deemed professional and it's what I'm expecting you to have when you show up at a job interview. I, I don't get to enforce my culture. White culture can look at my culture and say, oh, well, that's cute. I want that. I'm going to wear it to a festival. And then at the same time, they can say, you must also look the way I expect you to and act the way I expect you to because it's what I'm comfortable with. I don't get a say in either of those. I don't get to say, no, you cannot have what's mine. And no, I do not want to be forced into what is yours. And so that whole idea of a melting pot only looks like a melting pot when you're on the half of the equation whose needs are met. You get to stay comfortable where you want to be comfortable. And you get to take whatever it is that you like. And you think that's a win without asking, is that the same equation? for everyone else here, and it's most definitely not. I guess I just wanted to ask you about this analogy of being Black, feeling like you're in a constant abusive relationship. That just framed it for me so differently than I ever otherwise could have thought about it. Yeah, I mean, that's honestly what it feels. At first, I used to kind of describe that as my relationship with the city where I live, Seattle. Um, and it was on racial terms often, you know, I love this city and I desperately wanted to see the many ways in which it harms people of color. Um, and I keep hoping it will change and hope it will get better in the way you look at these kind of toxic relationships. But it's definitely, I think, an analogy that I hear the most from other people of color reading the book that rings so true to them and they didn't quite have the words for it. One of the things about race is um, racial oppression is a, a collection of harm. It's not just someone came and did something racist to you and that was the great harm of your life. It is a collection of small harms and large harms that work together to create this catastrophic damage. But we live in a society that wants you to prove every harm was intentional <laughs> and, you know, and to prove that every harm was worth your pain and your outrage. And it never wants to look at the cumulative effect of it all. And abusive relationships are often like that if you've been in one where someone will hurt you and then the next day they think they can do something fine and it will be forgotten. And then when they hurt you again, you don't have the right to show that there's been a pattern. And if someone were to, you know, call you a name once, you wouldn't say necessarily they're abusive. But if they call you that once a week 
um, for six months, you they definitely are. But it, when you talk to them, they say, well, I got mad this one time. What are you talking about? You know, how can you be so sensitive? And they refuse to let you look at the big picture. And race in America, oftentimes this country refuses to let people of color look at the big picture, refuses to acknowledge the big picture. And you see it time and time again when you say things like, oh, I just got pulled over by the police. I got a driving while black. People will say, prove it. Prove that's what it was. And while and you have to prove every time, even though this may be the 12th time in your lifetime you've been pulled over or the 20th time in your lifetime you've been pulled over. But every single time you're told to prove it or it doesn't count. But the abuse and the harm is still done and people don't want to see it. And I think that's one of the things that people don't understand is how damaging it is to not only be harmed regularly by the system and by countless people, but to also never know when that harm is coming and to never have it be acknowledged by the people who are harming you um, as bad to be as bad as it is. And that in itself adds a whole nother level of harm that makes you doubt your own sanity. And it really does feel like you're in an abusive relationship with the whole world. So we have a systemic problem. We have a country founded on racist principles, uh, racism by design, I think you actually call it in the book. So what are your thoughts on how we actually start dismantling this? It sounds totally overwhelming to me to think of it in terms of systems, but also so important. You know, I, I think it sounds overwhelming, but when we really look at it, it's it's actually far less overwhelming to look at it in terms of systems than in just like individual preference or, you know, individual thought processes or winning over enough racists, because that's almost impossible. Like there's a lot of people <laughs> in this country um, and going out and being like, if we just get enough white people to love people of color, this will go away. That's an almost impossible task. But we do interact with systems every day. You interact with your stores every day. You choose where to spend your money every day. Um, and, you know, you choose what movies to see every day. You choose who to vote for. You choose what to bring up at PTA meetings and what to bring up at city council meetings. These are all the ways in which our systems work. Right. So if you're at work and you don't know what your company's diversity program looks like or what their HR policies for racial discrimination are because you thought you would never as a white person need it. That's an opportunity right there to find out and make a difference. Right. If you never considered boycotting a film that doesn't have good representation because to you, you've always been represented, there's an opportunity to make a real difference. If you've never voted for your school board because it's not the sexiest election ever um, and you never thought about the way in which the school to prison pipeline ruins the lives of countless young people of color, there's an opportunity to interact with that system and make a real difference. So looking at it with systems is actually far more empowering than just looking at it as intention or whether you have enough love in your heart. Because if you've ever tried to have these conversations with people who are virulently opposed to loving or recognizing value of people of color, you realize how fruitless that can really be. And you've also probably realized that regardless of intention, you also oftentimes harm people. And so instead, we need to look at action and look at where the real harm is being done and what we can do. And luckily, every day we are 
given opportunities to make choices that can dismantle that system that harms people of color. What is working? What are good things that you're seeing happening along those lines? I am seeing, especially with the spread of the internet, I'm seeing it becoming a lot easier for people to explain the longer-term ramifications of these everyday interactions and for other people to then join forces. Um, Even from simple things, like I'm kind of a, I'm a makeup nerd. I love makeup. I obsess over it, always like spend way too much money on it. You know, I'm used to knowing that if I walk into a drugstore in any kind of suburban area that I cannot find foundation that works for me, um, I can't find a nude lipstick that works for me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm used to being like, oh, okay, you know, I can buy a red lipstick, I can buy mascara, and else, otherwise I will have to drive or order online. But now I can actually get online and say, hey, do you know what you're saying here? You know, like what, what it feels like to drive into a store and not exist and to realize that this is a store that doesn't want your money, that doesn't see you as a viable customer, to realize the message you're sending to young women and other femmes who would like to see themselves as beautiful when you don't even make these products for them. And other people can join in and people who would have never considered it can say, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to boycott this brand. And we're actually you know, seeing this happen quite often because, you know, we're not just talking about a beauty product, right? We're talking about capitalism. We're talking about who who gets, you know, promotions onto boards, who makes distribution decisions, who gets hired for design. Um, we're talking about so much more than just that. And I, I'm happy to see greater effort being brought around instead of treating race just as this obscure thing that no one can touch to show how these everyday decisions have bigger consequences and how many opportunities we have to make real change every single day. This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller talking with Ijoma Aluo, the author of So You Want to Talk About Race. When I attended the Women's March this year in Oakland, California, feeling good about just showing up, a woman in front of me carried a sign that kind of took me aback. It said, destroy white feminism. No justice, no peace. Did you see any signs that made you rethink what it means to be a feminist? I really couldn't have a conversation about race with Ijoma without talking about the women's movement, where we do have an opportunity to make change. Uh, You know, it's important to realize that we live in a system that's designed to be really easy to fall into these power structures. And so you have to be vigilant. And it's not just about thinking that you love people or you want to be a good person. It's really looking at all of the ways in which it's kind of inundated itself into your life and all of the ways in which you have bought into things you didn't even know that you bought into. And when we look at things like feminism, The assumption that what white women need is what all women need is kind of baked in from a lot of the early days. And a lot of people, because of their privilege, haven't stopped to consider, wait a minute, is this really the top concern for all women? And if I say I am working to help all women, then why am I not reaching out to see what other women need? But what happens oftentimes is women assume that this is the need for all women And because it's their need, it's the top need. So even if other women have other needs, they need to come second. 
But what's really speaking there is white supremacy and oftentimes ableism and um, homophobia and all of these other ways in which our biases kind of work our way into the systems. It's important if you are a feminist and you say that you stand for women to then, you know, do some studying on race and do some study on transmisogyny and do some study on ableism and do some study on classism, just like it's important if you are an anti-racist activist to study feminism and study class and all of these things, because Black women exist, you know, and unless you want to relabel your movement, the white women movement, feminism that doesn't practice intersectionality isn't feminism. I I think it's very possible to do. I have met people who have been able to unlearn a lot of the white supremacy that has been built into a lot of feminism and have been able to help other people along that path. But it is just as difficult. I, I think a lot of people feel like because they're feminists, they have some sort of head start in this. But you are no more guaranteed to be anti-racist than any other white American, if you call yourself a feminist. <laughs> and it's important to remember that, that that doesn't, that's not an immunization against other bigotries and other biases. And you still have to do just as much work there. And that can seem exhausting, but it's the only way to make sure that your movement doesn't become an oppressor in its own right. So I'm I'm sitting here as a white feminist going, okay, <laughs> I believe you. So what specifically should I be thinking about? I would say first ask who you're not listening to. Almost every major issue that we discuss in feminist circles today has alternate voices of people, of other women who are impacted by these issues differently. And if you're reading one article by a white woman and saying, yeah, she totally gets it, she gets maybe a tenth of it. And you need to be stopping and going, okay, she gets my experience. Who am I missing? So that means if you're not following Black feminists, Latinx feminists, if you're not following poor feminists and disabled feminists, you know, um, you're not seeing the whole picture. So I would start with that. Um, people are doing this work in writing. They, these feminists exist, you know, and they are writing and they're begging to be heard. You know, <laughs> they are shouting as loud as they can. But what happens oftentimes is people find that new source that fits their need that seems true according to what they've experienced only, and they think they have the whole picture. And so I would start with that. You know, start with, you know, looking at, if you're on Twitter, look at your Twitter feed and think, my gosh, how many feminists of, of color do I follow? How many disabled feminists do I follow? How many transgender feminists do I follow? And start fixing that, you know? And <laughs> think, where am I getting my news? What magazines am I subscribing to? Find the work that's already being done because it is being done. And start reading up there because every issue that affects women affects us. And we are trying desperately to get people to hear that we can be a part of the solution, that we are a necessary part of the solution. So, you know, you don't even need to reinvent the wheel. You just need to kind of expand your scope. And there are already so many women out there saying this is what you need to do if you want this, if you want your um, reproductive justice movement to really be reproductive justice Here's what reproductive justice looks like for women of color. You know, here's what it looks like for poor women. Here's what it looks like for disabled women. Here's what it looks like for transgender women. That work's already being done. You just you just got to find it. This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller. I'm talking with Ijoma Aluo, whose new book is So You Want to Talk About Race. I've been thinking a lot about this word empathy lately. So I asked Ijoma if she thought it would really be the answer to all our problems. 
I don't even know. I don't even like to call it empathy. Okay. Because I think that empathy can be limited by how far you can inject your personal experience into something. Yes. Right. You know, we have the empathetic response because we're like, oh, I know how that feels. But race, oftentimes like gender, it's it's a leap that's very hard to make. I would just say it comes down to respect. If you want to be heard because you're a human being and you believe that you're worthy of being heard and believed and you know that you can interpret what's happening in your world and that is valid, you extend that same respect to other people. And so even if what they're saying doesn't sound like anything you've experienced, you extend that respect and you say, you know what, you are a human being who is capable of interpreting what is happening in your world. And I believe you and start with that. Um, If you stop at just where you can recognize it in yourself and in your life experience, there's going to be a lot you miss because there are certain aspects of the way in which race was designed in this country where while we can have so much in common, it will seem sometimes like you've dropped in another planet when you're looking at the way some areas of the world work. And so it's important to remember that even when it doesn't seem you know, like what you've experienced ever, that you still respect this person. You still, I I always say it's worth the risk to believe people. It's worth the risk to believe Black people, to believe Asian Americans, to believe Latinx people when they say that this is happening, even if it doesn't sound like anything you've ever experienced in your life. Okay, so if you have privilege, or as someone just called it to me earlier today, white entitlement, do you have to give up what you have in order to help other people gain that privilege? I mean, do you feel like it's a zero-sum game or do you feel like we can all be working on the same level? I feel like people are afraid of that. Like, oh, well, if I help, you know, this other person, I'm going to have to give something up that I don't want to give up. Now, your definition of win is going to have to change because a lot of what you had may have been built unjustly. It's blood money. Um, And when you realize that's what it is, if you no longer want to hold on to that anymore, it's going to feel a lot less like a loss to sacrifice some of that in effort. And eventually it does end up being something that benefits everyone. White supremacy harms white people in many ways that cannot be measured. But even if it didn't, you should still want to fight it if you believe in justice, because it's unjust. And so I think a lot of times we have to realize there will be some loss and it does require some sacrifice. But no matter what, you do this because you believe in justice and you will, in the end, be more free. I see a lot of pain in white America trying to avoid issues of race, trying to avoid looking at what whiteness actually means in this society, because they know there is a lot of blood in that history, a lot of terror in that history. And it does something to you to not be able to look at your heritage fully and feel a lot of pride in it. The only way out of that is to turn it into something better. And that means doing some hard work and letting go of some of the gains that you've gotten on the backs of other people and fighting to make things more fair. And that reward may not be something you can add up the same way you could have added up the benefits of white privilege, but it is a reward nonetheless. And it's definitely one that's worth fighting for. What is the most annoying 
comment that you hear on the most regular basis that you just want people to stop? Well, um, there's two. One, I, I would really rather um, a white person never, ever, ever quote Martin Luther King at a person of color ever again. Um, <laughs> he's one of our heroes. Done. He is not a weapon. Yep. And I don't know anyone who does that who can ever even accurately quote him <laughs> or <laughs> list more than, you know, list any more of his thoughts than a dream he had. Um, and two, I would really love it if people would stop saying they don't have a racist bone in their body. Because <laughs> if that is a body oh, part you can excise. <laughs> I think I may have said that to someone the other day. So I will <laughs> never do that again. <laughs> I'm also not buying any Dodge Rams anytime soon. Yeah. Well, like as Jay Smooth said, you can't be like, oh, yeah, I went to the dentist, had that racism taken out. It's not quite how it works. <laughs> God, wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, what's the best advice that you've ever been given about how to turn talk into action? Um, you know, a lot of how I, <laughs> it, the way I write partially is, a, you know, from political science background, right, where you're writing for um, a particular objective. Um, but also, I live, I worked in tech and I worked in project management for a long time. And I learned really quickly how if you don't have a stated agenda, <laughs> things fall apart and you can waste copious amounts of time. If you ever work in like tech, especially during like build outs. Um, you waste half of your life in meetings that go nowhere if there isn't a state agenda and you're not willing to say, let's parking lot that. We're not talking about this right now. I learned very quickly how important it is, especially when dealing with complex tasks, to have a stated and agreed upon goal. And when it comes to talking about race, that's what necessary as well. And so, you know, <laughs> that's definitely something that I apply to my writing. Um, and to my work. And it's definitely something that I hope people start applying to their conversations, especially because we are coming from very oftentimes very different viewpoints in the world. Um, and so if you don't state what your intention is, you can have a conversation where two people are talking about two completely different things and it's never going to go anywhere. And you don't know why, because you never said why you were having the conversation in the first place. Ijeoma, thank you so much for having this conversation with me today and just telling it like it is. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Earlier in the conversation, Ijeoma said, coming from a place of privilege stops you from seeing oppression. For those of you who are already woke, bear with me as I have this epiphany. Or maybe like me, you're rethinking the way you see everything. We need to become aware of our privilege without becoming defensive or feeling guilty. But we can use whatever we've got at our disposal to make change. It's worth the risk to listen and to believe someone when they're willing to open up and tell you what it's like for them. And if you don't think you have a racist bone in your body, I recommend you take Harvard's implicit bias test. Implicit preferences can predict behavior, cause discrimination in hiring and promotion, medical treatment, and decisions related to criminal justice. And speaking of which, the ACLU now has a campaign called Meet Your DA. District attorneys alone decide who is deserving of a jail or prison sentence, or have a chance to rebuild their life and have charges dismissed. We vote for these people. I'll put a link to all that and to Ijoma Aluo's book, along with the others she recommends reading, on my website at inflectionpointradio.org. 
I'm Lauren Schiller, and this is Inflection Point. That's our Inflection Point for today. Know a woman with a great rising up story? Let us know at inflectionpointradio.org. While you're there, I invite you to become a patron of Inflection Point. Your contribution keeps women's stories front and center, and you'll be rewarded with gifts like an Inflection Point mug and EO body care. It's all on our contribute page at inflectionpointradio.org. We're on Facebook at Inflection Point Radio. You can follow me on Twitter at L.A. Schiller. And to find out more about the guests you heard today and sign up for our email, go to inflectionpointradio.org. Inflection Point is produced in partnership with KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco and PRX. All of our episodes are on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, Stitcher, and NPR One. Give us a five-star review and add us to your listening queue. Our story editor and content manager is Alora Weaver. Our engineer and producer is Eric Wayne, and I'm your host, Lauren Schiller. Lauren Schiller.